Hi, everybody. Keep Matthew 17 open, and there is a white sheet with a sermon outline on it, which will help you follow along. But let's let's pray and um, ask for God's help with Matthew 17. Our Father, we thank you that Jesus is at the centre of the Scriptures. And we ask that tonight we might understand more of him so that we might appreciate him more and also enjoy the assurance that he gives us. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So years ago when I was training as an academic, I went to my first uh, conference uh, overseas Uh, in this really beautiful location in the west coast of France. And it was so stunning, in fact, they had to draw the curtains during the day to stop us from being distracted out the window during all the presentations. And on the first night of this conference, there was a dinner, and I sat down next to this guy. I was sure must have been a newbie like me because he was just this shy, quiet, unassuming bloke from Eastern Europe, and I said to him, So is this your first conference? And he said, no, I've actually been here many times, which was true because the next day when I was listening to his presentation, I discovered that he was probably the most well-known person at the conference because he'd invented a method that had completely transformed the field. Now, it's, it's always a bit of a shock, isn't it, when you discover that somebody is more important than you thought they were, um, or if you find out that there's just more to somebody than meets the eye, or if you find out that somebody isn't actually who you thought they were. So that experience um, can be very distressing if you, for example, trusted someone and then discover that they're habitually untrustworthy or unfaithful. The experience can be surprising It's like discovering that the migrant who cleans your workplace office every night is actually a highly trained professional whose skills just aren't recognised here. The experience can be unsettling, like when you find out that so-and-so actually has a lot more authority over you than you realised. But the experience can also be comforting, like when you discover that the first responder to your first aid situation is actually a trained doctor. Now, Matthew's narrative, his whole account focuses on the question, who is Jesus? And it might seem a bit like Matthew's been labouring this point um, as we've gone through it in our sermon series, but his insistence is actually really helpful to us because Jesus is not a simple entity and there's always more that we can discover and grasp about Jesus. And the great thing is that as we discover and grasp more of Jesus, we actually grow in our assurance as Christians. And so that's what I hope our experience will be tonight. There's three experiences in chapter 17 and three different locations, and that's the that's the outline. And each one of those experiences will bless us with a deeper understanding of Jesus and will be a gift of assurance as well. So let's look at them together. First of all, the mountaintop. So this is verses 1 to 13. And this 
really was not like anything the disciples had experienced before or would experience after. It was a truly unusual experience. Even the word to describe what happened on the mountain, transfiguration, is ambiguous. It literally means transformed because there on the mountain, for an instant, Jesus became otherworldly. You know, his face shone, his clothes were incredibly bright. And then he was joined by two of the greatest Old Testament figures, Moses and Elijah. And if that wasn't enough, the group then gets engulfed in this bright cloud out of which God speaks. This was a profound and terrifying experience. So it's not surprising that the three of them fall face down on the ground. And then everything goes back to normal. It was a strange and it was an amazing experience for these three disciples. Now, are you guys familiar with uh, Far Side cartoons? So my favourite Far Side cartoon, you're going to have to try to visualise this, is two sheep, Randy and Mark, in the foreground. They're behind some bushes looking out and they're looking out on this big operation being conducted by the wolves. And one of the wolves is driving a truck and on the truck is this huge missile which has got a picture of a sheep with a big line through it. And the caption says, it was at this point that Randy and Mark suspected that the wolves were up to no good. (laughs) And it feels a bit like this with Peter, James and John. You think it was at this point that Peter, James and John must have suspected that there was more to Jesus than they realised. This was a really strange and amazing experience. But it wasn't just strange and amazing because in its essence, this was a revelation from God about his son, Jesus. And it's those brief but very important words that God spoke which bring the meaning of the mountain experience to light. So take a look at those words again that God spoke in verse 5. While Peter was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now God does something quite surprising here. By saying, This is my beloved in whom I delight, he brings together two Old Testament passages that you wouldn't really expect to be brought together. He brings together Psalm 2, which is a psalm about the coronation of God's special king, the Christ, and Isaiah 42, which is a prophecy about the suffering servant who will die for the sins of people. So the king and the servant are one person, and on the mountain, God affirms and confirms that Jesus is that person. And so Jesus' intense shining on the mountain is, if you like, a brief pulling back of this cosmic curtain, a glimpse of the incredible splendour of Jesus, the risen Christ. So it's no wonder that when God finishes his short words that he says, listen to him. And notice that this is in the presence of Moses and Elijah. These two guys were not random participants here. 
So Moses, the one through whom God gave the law, Elijah, who stands on behalf of all the Old Testament prophets, together they are the entire revelation of God before Christ. So by saying to Peter, James and John, in the presence of Moses and Elijah, listen to Jesus, God is saying that Jesus the Christ is the fulfilment and the completion of everything I have to reveal. And that is an incredible thing to say about Jesus. So where do we find assurance here? Well, three, three places, I think. So in the first place, there is assurance for Jesus. You remember that he has just begun to resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem, where he is going to suffer and die. So what a precious affirmation this is from his father, to hear God speak those prophetic words from the Old Testament and to know that this horrible path that he is walking is the Father's will and that his vocation as the suffering servant is the right one and that there will be relief, there will be vindication when he rises as Lord. This must have been an absolute treasure of encouragement for Jesus at this point. But there's also assurance for the disciples because seeing Jesus in splendour and hearing God speak on the mountain confirmed for them that he really was the Christ, as they thought, that they really were following the right man, even though they were a little bit confused on some points, like, for example, his suffering, and that they really were safe with Jesus. After all, they had just been in the very presence of the living God, and yet they were safe because of Jesus. Remember he said, he touched them, get up, don't be afraid. And the assurance that the disciples had on on the mountain only grew afterwards, after Jesus had risen from the dead. Peter actually wrote specifically about this event in his second letter. So let me read that for you from 2 Peter 1. He says in his letter, we didn't follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. 2 Peter chapter 1. It was a profoundly important event for Peter because it confirmed Jesus as the suffering servant and the risen Christ. And that's really where you and I find assurance too because Peter wrote his letter for us. He says to you and me, Jesus received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from God saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Peter wants us to be fully assured that Jesus is God's beloved 
the Christ. He wants us to be fully persuaded that we should not hesitate to listen to everything Jesus says, everything. And he wants us to be completely confident in all that Jesus has accomplished as the suffering servant and the risen king. So now this small little group, Jesus, Peter, James and John, they come down the mountain and they come to the plain and this is the setting for the second episode in chapter 17. And they meet a crowd which includes a very distressed man who pleads with Jesus on behalf of his son. And we discover that this little boy suffers from seizure-like symptoms, but that it's not merely a medical condition. You see, Satan has control of this child and tries to kill the boy by burning him or by drowning him. We also learn that the father asked the other disciples to heal the boy, but they weren't able to. And on hearing this, Jesus is exasperated. And then he calls for the boy, he rebukes the demon, and the child is completely healed. That was the experience on the plane. What does that reveal? Well, to start with, we shouldn't miss how that little episode reveals the true character of Satan and of evil. See, Jesus has cast out evil many times before. Even his disciples have had extensive experience casting out evil on Jesus' behalf. You can read what they did earlier in Matthew's Gospel. But here there seems to be a particularly strong manifestation of evil. The unrelenting intent to kill this little boy. Possibly the the man's only child. Make no mistake, Satan's only desire, without exception, is to kill and to destroy. I think it's tempting sometimes to think of Satan a little bit like we think of the villains, even the very worst villains that we see in the movies that we watch, which always have redeeming features. Satan has no redeeming features. His character, his intent, his works are pure evil. But this only serves to reveal here how comprehensive Jesus is in the face of that evil. Did you notice how effortlessly he heals the little boy? He rebukes the demon and instantaneously the boy is restored. It's clear that there is incredible power in Jesus, in the face of evil. But it's also clear that there's no power in people in the face of evil. And presumably this was the problem with the disciples because they tried to confront that evil themselves as if somehow the power to do so was intrinsic to them rather than the power of Jesus to work through them. You know, that's a little bit like you've got a big granite block and you're trying to smash it with one of those little plastic hammers you might get in your Happy Meal from McDonald's. You need the big demolition ball of Jesus to swing through and smash the thing to dust. And that is really the source of Jesus' exasperation. He just saw faithlessness 
He looked out on his disciples and the people and he saw faithlessness. Even his disciples, who of all people should have known how powerful and how dependable he is. Notice the words he uses to describe the people, unbelieving and perverse. They're unbelieving because they don't live like he's God's son who can do anything. And they're perverse because instead they live trusting in themselves or in other people to control life. That evil intent that we saw that was so obvious with the boy being thrown into the fireplace or drowned in the lake actually has a much subtler manifestation too. The self-determination of human beings, that natural refusal we have to entrust ourselves to the God who made us. And that brings us to the assurance of this second episode, which is the unlimited and unfailing capability of Jesus. You would have noticed that the disciples were confused by their inability to drive out the demon, and they asked Jesus privately to help them get why that happened, look at his response to them in verse 20. Because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus here picks up two proverbials from his day. The mustard seed is the proverbial tiny, and moving mountains as the proverbial impossible. See, the disciples' inability betrays not small faith, but faithlessness, because even the tiniest faith rightly placed in Jesus achieves incredible things. Why? Because of the immense capability of Jesus in whom that faith is placed. Now, did you know that every second the sun converts some of its mass into energy? And it turns out that that energy is equivalent to one billion megaton hydrogen bombs or 1,000 trillion tonnes of TNT every second, that amount of energy coming out. Now, imagine this energy in the size of the sun. We can probably imagine that because we see the sun. But imagine energy in this basketball or imagine that amount of energy in this little pinhead which maybe only Miles and Carol can see which you wouldn't be able to see from the back okay it it the size is actually irrelevant because the immense power of Jesus is the same so brothers and sisters the encouragement here is that because Jesus is so very powerful and so very capable even the weakest Confidence in him can change us and can change the world. What an encouragement and how liberating that is. It's not the size of faith that matters. It's the capability of Jesus. Matthew writes this for our benefit that we might be fully assured of the supreme power of Jesus. What are you facing right now? Jesus is supremely capable of sustaining you in it. What kind of change needs to be worked in your heart? 
Jesus can work that transformation in you. What will the future hold for you? Jesus will not allow you to be overcome by it. What difference can you make to the world? In the hands of Jesus, anything's possible. We now come to the third and the last setting in this chapter, Galilee and Capernaum. And first of all, in Galilee, Jesus explains this time for the third time to his disciples that he must suffer and die. And on hearing this, the disciples experience great grief in verse 23. The chapter then ends in the town of Capernaum where Peter gets buttonholed by this tax collector on whether Jesus pays the temple tax. And this becomes a teaching moment for Jesus, ending in that somewhat quirky miracle, which no doubt surprised Peter, where he found the required tax inside the mouth of a fish. So what does all this reveal? Well, I think it chiefly reveals the disciples' confusion. For a start, there's their grief in verse 23 when Jesus explains his death. Now, at one level, the disciples' grief is completely understandable. They loved Jesus and they were devoted to him. But their grief also underlines just how confused they were about his role as the Christ. They believed him to be the king, Psalm 2, but not the suffering servant, Isaiah 42. The confusion then continues with Peter and the temple tax. That two drachma tax was a fee that every adult Jewish male would pay for the upkeep of the temple. And Peter's confusion isn't about the tax per se, it's fundamentally about who Jesus is. You see, by affirming to the tax collector that, of course, my master Jesus pays the temple tax, it's as if Peter sees Jesus just like the average Jewish male. So Jesus presses Peter on this and he says, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? Jesus' point, of course, is that he's not the average Jewish male. He's the son of God. And nor is Peter an average Jewish male, because by his association with Jesus, he too is part of God's family. And as sons, they're not obliged to pay this tax. Yet you'll notice that Jesus does not want to put any stumbling block in the way of his ministry. And so he pays the tax. And I take it that this tension between Jesus having no obligation to pay the tax and yet choosing to pay is the reason for the quirky fish miracle. It's as if Jesus has paid without really having paid. Now there's great assurance for Peter and for us in this episode. Because if you belong to Jesus, then you belong to God's family. You can just imagine Peter responding to the tax collector's question, nervously or perhaps defensively that of course my master pays the tax but there was no need for nervousness there was no need for defensiveness because Jesus is the son of God and Peter is in the family 
And it's the same for us. We don't earn our way into God's family and nor do we err our way out of God's family. There's no need for spiritual nervousness, no need for spiritual defensiveness. If you belong to Jesus, you're adopted in the family and you share in all the blessings always. When I was growing up, my mum owned a cafe and I'd often go and visit the cafe for lunch And whenever I did, I was offered whatever I wanted, you know, a sandwich, soft drink, uh, she made homemade carrot cake, you know, and never once did I pay. Never once did I even think I would pay. I wasn't expected to pay because I was the son of the owner. You know, the customers paid, but not the sons and daughters. I simply received the food as a gift. And I hopefully thanked my mum. No nervousness, no defensiveness, just knowing and appreciating that I was part of the family. Brothers and sisters, be assured that when you belong to Jesus, you belong to God's family. You needn't be spiritually insecure. You needn't try to earn your way with God. You needn't fear that you're not actually a family member when you're connected to the Son You are as secure as you can be. So let me finish three episodes. On the mountain, the disciples had great fear. But friends, there's no need to fear when the beloved Son of God is with us. On the plain, the disciples were faithless. But friends... Put your confidence in Jesus' infinite and unfailing power. And then in Galilee, they were confused. But friends, remember that Jesus is the Son of God and when you belong to him, you belong to God and nothing can change that. I think like the disciples, we can be a little bit slow to learn about Jesus, but even when we do learn about Jesus, we can be quick to forget. And so may we not tire of learning from accounts like Matthew 17 more of our Saviour and grow in our appreciation of him and therefore grow in our assurance that comes from him. So let me pray that we would do that. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus, our great Saviour. Father, we thank you for his unlimited and unfailing power. We thank you that with him we are completely safe and have no need to fear. And we thank you that as the Son of God, we belong to him and we belong to you and nothing can change that. Thank you for... Jesus, our Saviour, and thank you for the assurance you give us in him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.